So here we are, and we are um, continuing on this theme of Nehemiah and of these gates. I, I just felt I would start with this word. Um, I'm very fond of Dallas Willard, and this is a book, uh, Revolution of Character, and here's what he says. We are created for a divine life. When we open the writings of the New Testament, we discover that we are called to live in the awareness of another world to join in the kingdom of heaven and participate in the divine nature and I think that's what we've been talking about over this weekend that receiving Jesus as our saviour is the start of a journey when I was an eight-year-old child I had no idea the journey that I was entering into uh, and I guess it's an if we're open it's an unfolding story as God reveals himself and the depths of his wisdom and his plans and his purposes and we do not belong to this world we're living in this world but we are part of another world and we are journeying and we want to be transformed as we go we want to become more like jesus and if you were here at the earlier i think you all were here at the earlier one you'll know that we we finished last session looking at the horse gate Where's my Bibles? I think I have two Bibles in that bag. I forgot to bring them up with everything else. We, we were looking at the two gates, and uh, at, the, at, the, at the horse gate, and we were looking at how the horse gate would have been the place where, uh, where Solomon's horses would have been kept, probably. And uh, it, it really speaks, spiritually speaks, of, of warfare. And although we're in this world, we're not of this world, and we have an enemy our enemy is not people the enemy uses people operates through them but our enemy is the unseen world the one that comes against us and these three characters this unholy trinity as i call them in the book of nehemiah sanballat and tobiah and his friend gershom they're actually just a picture of the enemy who comes against us and so as we look at this story we're going to see that um that these men continued to warfare against them. We're going to be looking a little bit at chapter 6 and see how uh, these three men came against Nehemiah and we're going to compare some of the ways that he comes against us as well. But just for a moment before we do that, I just want to say that, uh, that we are to be trained. God wants to train us. I love what David says in Psalm 144. He says that, that the Lord is the Lord who trains his hands to war. God wants to train your hands to war. And, and recently I said, Lord, what does that mean? What was David meaning to, to train his hands for war? And it just came to me, I think that training our hands for war means to put our hands up in praise. I believe that praise is one of the greatest um, forces against the enemy. And when we give thanks and we praise God, a thankful heart is so powerful. And I have learned over the years, if I am feeling down about something or depressed about something, I start to thank God, even for the bad things. I thank him for them. I just say, God, I'm going to thank you for this. Even though I don't like it, and even though it looks to me like this is a very bad situation, I'm going to thank you because I know you'll do something in this bad situation, and it's going to be for your glory. So I'm just thanking you up ahead of time. And you know, that does something that relieves pain and stress. Don't ask me. It's supernatural. 
We have a supernatural God. And when we go against the flow of what the world does, we find that amazing things happen. So thankfulness and praise are mighty weapons of warfare to the pulling down of strongholds. And if you've got strongholds in your life, then you know that this is so true. And I wanted to, I'm a bit jumbled up today. I don't know what way I am. I had something written down. I don't think I've actually brought it with me. But anyhow, I have, don't think it's there. I, I really wanted to read you um, something from the, uh, no, I must have left it in the, in the place. That's okay. Um, of just that verse to the pulling down, we, we don't have the, the warfares of this, the weapons of this world, but we warfare with the, the, the weapons of God the, to the power of pulling down of strongholds. And so we're going to continue looking at uh, this, um, this gate of the horse gate just for a few moments before we continue on. Um, I believe another mighty weapon is humility. I believe that God wants us to be a humble people. And I, I think it's very interesting that in... Um, I still can't believe I've actually left that behind. Just a moment, let's check in case it's here. Aha! <laughs> See, that wee trickster. Trying to hide from me. Okay, let me read this to you. For although, This is in the New Passion translation. For although we live... In the natural realm, realm, we don't wait. Did you all get that? I'll repeat it again. For although we live in the natural realm, we don't wage a military campaign employing human weapons, using manipulation to achieve our, our aims. Instead, our spiritual weapons are energized with divine power to effectively dismantle the defenses behind which people hide. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God and break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defence of the, of the true knowledge of God. We capture like prisoners of war. That every, we capture like prisoners of war every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the Anointed One. I think that's very powerful because the most, the, the, the biggest problem we all have are, is our thoughts. Our thought life can just totally diminish the power in our lives. If we are thinking ungodly thoughts, if we're listening to the enemy and to what he's telling us, we are going to be defeated by the enemy. And so it's so important that we capture those thoughts. I have a, a friend, a young woman, who took, I think, over a year actually listen to what her thoughts what she, the way she was thinking and she started to write down all the negative thoughts and she had a, a bad relationship with family and a lot of stuff and hurt in her childhood and she began to literally capture those thoughts and write them down take them captive and she began to replace them with what God said about her and what God said about her life and she literally wrote it down until she began to think it and became part of her now that's a journey. That's not something that will happen overnight. You won't just all of a sudden leave here and miraculously have this wonderful thought life that will be totally in tune with the word of God. This is, this is where you have to actually do some work in this warfare battle that is so important that we actually capture these thoughts 
and bring them down and make them bow to the name of Jesus. And we say we do not believe that. This is what God says. This is what I believe. And as we do that, we will be changed. As our thought life changes, we will be changed. And this is the amazing thing that I felt I wanted to say to you. First Peter 5 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care on him, for he cares for you. See, when we don't, when we don't, um, for it goes on to say, for your enemy, the roaring lion, lion is going about seeking whom he may devour. Now those ver- that verse is linked to the enemy, the roaring lion, because if we are worried and we're carrying all of this trouble and we're listening to all these negative thoughts, then we are actually making a platform for the enemy to come in like a roaring lion and devour us. And alongside, alongside the wrong thinking, if we begin to get proud about ourselves, we are also giving a platform for the enemy to come in and to wreak havoc in our lives. And if we, are, if we are worrying and full of anxiety and not casting our cares upon the Lord, this is another platform for the enemy because we are not trusting God. And if we are not trusting God, the enemy has got legal right to come in and to absolutely torment your thinking. And so these are things, practical things, that we need to remember that it's so important that we... we humility, some people think humility what means walking in shame. Humility means walking and knowing who you are in Christ. It's not shame and it's not pride. It's, it's walking in the truth that you're a daughter of the King of Kings, that you're of tremendous value, that God loves you and God has a plan for you and you're different to every other human being in the universe and you are worth more than gold to God. He sent his son for you. That's good thinking. Shameful thinking is, oh, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I always get everything wrong. That is not glorifying God. We need to know who we are and we need to walk in that. I think I'm probably preaching to the converted in that, but anyhow, there you go. Um, so those are just some of the things that I think are, in, are, are worthwhile saying that uh, we need to remember. And I think, that, I think that Nehemiah was pretty good at this. So let's look at chapter 6 and just see what, what happens here. Get my rid of all my wee bits of paper. Okay, chapter 6, Nehemiah. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, so he hadn't completely finished it, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, for they thought to do me harm. So I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I love this. I really love this because here is uh, are these. Here's the enemy, and let's let's make it practical for ourselves. The enemy, when he sees that you're doing a work for God and you're getting on with getting your thinking straight and you're you know who you are and you're obey, walking in obedience and actually you're focusing on on God and you are focused on the purposes that God has for your life and you're beginning to live out the purposes that God has planned for you, I'll tell you the enemy does not like that and he will try to stop you. And, and Nehemiah realised that this man, uh, that these men were actually trying to stop him 
uh, going forward in the work of God. They were trying to come against them. In fact, Nehemiah said uh, later on, he said that he realized they were trying to intimidate him into quitting. You find that in, in chapter 6, verse 8. We need to be aware that the enemy will intimidate. It's one of his strategies. He will try to get it. You know someone who intimidates you? They'll get in front of you and they'll say, you can't do this. I dare you to go forward. You can't do this. And that's a big strategy of the enemy. But here's the thing. The, the enemy in this case, Sanballat and his cronies, were trying to distract Nehemiah. They were trying to get him off course. They were using a different tactic. Come and meet us in the Valley of Ono. Now, I love this because uh, we know what the reply was. Uh, they kept sending messages, and Nehemiah said, I cannot come down, for I am doing a great work. He knew what he was doing, and he wasn't going to listen to it. But here's what I love about it. He was asking Nehemiah to go to the Valley of Ono, and Nehemiah said, oh, no. <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> and we need to learn to say to the enemy, oh, no. <laughs> we took, a few years ago, we decided we'd take a group. I felt that God was leading us to take a group to Israel, and we've done it for, the, for a few years. And the first year that we went, we got off the plane, a crowd of us, I think there was 42 or something of us, and we were on this coach, and we were driving down to Galilee, and uh, we just had left the airport, and our guide said, do you realise that we are now driving through the valley of Ono? And we all went, oh no. <laughs> and it was fascinating to be in the very place where they were inviting Nehemiah to come and talk with them. And so Nehemiah... Uh, let's just read a little bit, of, little bit of this out of the message. It says, I knew they were scheming to hurt me. So I sent messengers back with this. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why would the work come to a standstill just so I can come down to see you? Four times they sent this message and four times I gave them my answer. This, the fifth time, the same messenger with the same message, Sam Ballot sent an on-sea letter with this message the word is out among the nations, and so on and so on. And they're trying to, again, get him to come and talk with them and, uh, and compromise, come into compromise, which is another one of the enemy's tactics. Here's what Nehemiah did. I sent him back this. There's nothing to what you're saying. You have made it all up. They were trying to intimidate us into quitting. They thought they'll give up. They'll never finish it. And here's the bit I love in the message. Nehemiah prayed... Give me strength. <laughs> Give me strength. That's just the way the message puts it. And you see, Nehemiah was coming against the enemy. He had to he had to fight the whole way through while he was doing this building. And I think we need to realise that that is what happens with us as well. There's an ongoing battle that we have to fight. And I'm, I'm bringing this into the last session because... I feel it's important to say, when we come to the next gate, which is the eastern gate, it's important to say that this is the gate that we will be waiting for. This, is, this speaks to me of the, of the second coming of Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about the eastern gate, and then we kind of talk about why I link the, the warfare with the waiting. Because I think, I think when we realise who we are in Christ, and we know that God is, has a job for us to do, we, we, we're working with God, but we work as we wait and we worship. 
Those three things, I believe, go together. We are working as we wait and we worship God. And so this gate, it was the Eastern Gate. And it was also called the, the Golden Gate or, or, and also called the Beautiful Gate. Now, this was the gate where Ezekiel, if you read the book of Ezekiel, it was where Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory. You know, the, the, the actual visual glory of Christ that was in the tabernacle. The, whether it was like a light or the, the Shekinah, it talked about Shekinah, is, as you know, was not actually in the Bible, but it's a word that's used to describe the presence of God that was in the tabernacle. And in Ezekiel, those chapters around chapter 10 and 11, he actually had a vision of seeing the Shekinah glory leaving the tabernacle and going right over to the eastern gate and leaving God's presence, leaving out the eastern gate. I think that is fascinating. It's so sad to see God being so grieved with all these years of, of his people ignoring him and disobeying him and, and, and offending him in so many ways that God's presence had to leave. That grieves me when I think of the kind of glory leaving and moving out of the temple and right across and out of the eastern gate. And that's what Ezekiel saw. But here's what absolutely blesses me. That centuries later, down the timeline, we see God fulfilling his promise. And we see Jesus, who is the fullness of the Shekinah glory, who is God in flesh, the fullness of the Shekinah glory, and he comes through the eastern gate. I, I'm not sure, it doesn't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure that he came through the eastern gate that morning on the donkey, the, the, the week before he went to the cross. Isn't it amazing that God would come to his people after so much hurt and, and, and his people offending him for such a long time. But God, God came back in his son and he came, to, um, he came to Jerusalem. Now, this gate, it's very interesting because Ezekiel wrote a prophecy. And in chapter 44 of Ezekiel, he saw that at the end times that this gate would be closed. It would be shut, is the way that he writes it. And it's very interesting that the, this gate is shut today. And uh, the gate was sealed up by the Turks. Ottoman Sultan Suleiman, the Magnificent, rebuilt it together with the city walls. But he walled it up in 1541. And so isn't it amazing that the fulfilment of scripture is there for all to see. When you go to the, when you go to the Mount of Olives and you look at, uh, over the Kidron Valley and you look over to this eastern gate, the eastern gate is shut according to what Bible prophecy said would happen at the end times. I find that so exciting. And, and it gives, the, it says it will be shut until the prince returns, until Jesus comes, when his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 14, tells us that he will come to the Mount of Olives and that he will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split and he will come down and he will go through the eastern gate. That is what is going to happen. And he's going to come and it talks about coming with his clouds. I believe he's coming with his people and he's coming back to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign on this earth, literally a kingdom on this earth. His kingdom is coming and we're waiting for it and we're going to be part of it. And that's so exciting to me. And so the Eastern Gate is a beautiful picture of all of that. And it's, it's the very, it's the gate, it's the beautiful gate that's referred to in Acts chapter 1. Remember, Peter and James went to pray. 
Did you all learn that little chorus when you were at school? Peter and James went to pray. They met a blind man or a lame man on the way. Was he lame? He was lame, wasn't he? Yes, met a lame man on the way. I can't sing, but you can sing. <laughs> and you remember, do you know this song? Yeah. And help me out. What does it say? It says... Christ, I can say, yeah, because what have I done? But such as I have given thee, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up, rise up and walk. And he went, he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. He went walking and leaping and praising God. You can see I'm a great singer. Anyhow, <laughs> I often think of that and I think of this, this lame man sitting at the beautiful gate and along come Peter and John and they come to pray and they see this man they say we haven't got any money to give to you but such as we have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk and he jumped up and I, I often think of the joy around this gate. Do you know when we come to Jesus and we receive him as our saviour. Don't we jump up? Aren't we lame? We can't walk. We can't walk spiritually until we meet him, until we have that encounter. And so we're able to jump and to dance and to sing and to praise the name of Jesus. And so I've written in my notes, the gospel not only lifts us up to dance and praise, but it makes us more beautiful as we wait for Jesus to return. And so this is the gate, I believe, spiritually speaking, that we're waiting at this gate. We're waiting at the eastern gate. We're waiting... For, for him to come back. We're waiting for us to see him uh, face to face and to be with him as he sets up his kingdom. And so as we follow Jesus through all these gates, we find ourselves, if we're, if we're true and real before him, we find ourselves growing more beautiful, more like him, waiting in anticipation beside the eastern gate saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. The final gate, the muster gate, or the inspection gate, and this was the gate where the troops were mustered or numbered uh, before um, or after battle. This could well have been the, the place where, where David stood waiting for armies to return. Um, <clears throat> it's a picture, I believe spiritually speaking, of how we will one day meet with God. There is such a place as the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Romans 14 verses 10 to 12 say for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so each of us will give an account of himself to God therefore let us not judge one another anymore but rather resolve not to put a stumbling block or a cause for anyone to fall for our, or a cause to fall uh, I repeat that let us not let us resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way and so we, we see this as a picture this gate I believe the inspection gate reminds me of how we will meet with Jesus and some people get very frightened by that but I actually think it's going to be a wonderful experience do you know why because I believe that as Jesus looks at us and, and if you if you take a look at 1 Corinthians 3 we haven't time to read it all it's where uh, you know all the dross in our lives is burned up here's my Here's my take on it, according to what I read in the scripture. You know the picture we have of, in Revelation 1 of Jesus with his eyes burning? I believe we'll have an audience of one with him. And I believe his eyes will burn up everything that was dross in our lives. 
Everything, and I, here's, the, here's the good bit. You know the way we think we've done great things, and maybe it's just for our own satisfaction. It's not because we really are motivated for love of Jesus. Those things will be burnt up. But the things that you did because you loved Jesus and because you wanted to bless him, things you had forgotten about, things you maybe didn't even make any notice of, you didn't even think about, you just did because you loved Jesus, those will be, those will be the things that will go through the fire. Those will be the, the gold and the, the precious stones that are talked about in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3. Because 1 Corinthians 3 gives us this picture that all the things we've done for love of Jesus will go through the fire, I believe the burning of his eyes, and he'll burn away all the stuff that was dross. And, and the, the things we did for him will go through the fire, and we will actually not only be saved and taken to heaven, but we'll be rewarded. For the least little things we've done, he's going to reward us. Isn't he such an amazing God? Like getting in would be good enough. But to think he's actually going to reward us because we loved him, that he has a reward in store for us. I tell you, this is, this is so real. And it tells us in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, it tells us, uh, verse, verses 13 to 15, it tells us that those who haven't lived for him, but yet they've trusted Jesus as their saviour, but they haven't an awful lot, it says they will get into heaven, but so is by far. They'll just get him with the skin of their teeth. It's really so precious that we want to serve him. We don't, I don't want to get in with the skin of my teeth. I want to bring the one that I love and the one who has given me everything. I want to give something to him, to be able to cast something at his feet, something to say, I love you, I thank you for all you've done. And so this gate is very, very precious to me. And it reminds me about how Jesus said, where your, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. We need to be banking in heaven. We need, to be, we need to be doing stuff for Jesus because we love him and something that's going to bless his heart. So here's the two gates. And this was the last gate, which of course brought them full circle back to the sheep gate again. And we talked in the first session about how uh, about how everything comes back to the cross. Everything comes back to Jesus as being uh, that lamb of God, the little lamb. And we've already sung it a couple of times, but I really love Revelation, and I love, we come back to it at the very end, but I just want to remind you that, that he is the one who can open the scroll. It's all about the lamb of God at the end of the day. And so these gates go right in a circle, and they remind us that the, the cross... The cross of Christ, uh, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, and, and he, the Lamb of God, will be there, and, and we, will, we will praise him and worship him. Uh, for all eternity, he's going to be in the centre of our love and our praises. Now, you might think that I'm about to come to the end, but actually not. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, you better shake yourselves up a bit, because there's a bit more to come, all right? Because at the end of all of this, where am I? At the end of all of this, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, hang on a minute, mark this, okay. At the end of, of, of all the building, when the building was done, and I can tell you that Nehemiah goes on to say, we, we missed a couple of things, but the enemy actually sent a false prophet, a woman called Noadiah, to try and divert him. Also sent another man to tell him to come into the temple when it was just a diversion. I'll tell you that the enemy will send many things in your life to try and distract you and detract you from the will of God. We need to be careful. I love prophecy. 
I love the gift of prophecy, but I'm telling you the Bible also tells us that we are to check prophecy. We are to we are not just to take everything like gullible people. We have to check everything with God's word. And so Nehemiah was they even tried to fool him with a false prophetess, a lady called Noadiah. And so we see that he finally it says that he finally built um, all of these built up all of these gates and the wall. And it tells us at the end of chapter six, um, is it chapter six or is it chapter eight? Hold on a second to get it. That the wall was built. So the wall was finished in fifty-two days. Chapter six, verse fifteen, and it says the wall was finished on the twelfth day of Elul in fifty-two days. I can tell you that's an absolute miracle to do a work like that without heavy cranes and lifting. I mean, with no modern equipment to complete that work in fifty-two days only God. And how often in our life we look and we say, how did that happen? Only God. When we, when we, when we trust him, anything can happen if we're walking according to his will. And so it says that when Nehemiah's enemies heard that the work was completed, it says they were disheartened because they knew that the work could only have been done by our God. Isn't it so wonderful when, when people who don't know Jesus look and say, how did that happen? Those Christians, how do they do that? Only God could do that. And so that's the testimony that they wanted. But listen, there was more blessing to come, and I want to finish off with this, and then with a little personal story before I finish. Is that okay? Are you still with me? Okay. After the gates were built and rebuilt, and, and the wall was, was sorted, uh, they decided that the chapter 8, they decided that they would gather together in the open square that was in front of the water gate. Remember the water gate was a picture of the word of God. And this man, Ezra, remember we mentioned him last night? He was the one who had gone before Nehemiah uh, and he was the man who had taught the people the law and done his job and then he, he sort of got out of the picture for a while and he actually brought together parts of the scripture and wrote First and Second Chronicles and uh, a few other things that he's maybe credited for other books of the Bible. So he was a busy man, a kind of a scribe, but a teacher of the Bible. And so they all gather together after this work, they all gather together in this square and it says that, that Ezra the priest, he brought the law before them and he read it. And it says that he read it from a pulpit. This is the first mention of a pulpit in the Bible. I, I sort of picture it a little bit like this one. This is my imagination. And you see this, I, I don't know whether he was little or not, but I call him a little old man. Ezra standing at the pulpit and he's teaching. It says, then he read, verse 3, he read from the Bible, read it in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And he read it from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. Can you, are you picturing this? And as he read the word of God that they all began to weep. And they were so overcome because they realized that they hadn't been keeping the word of God. They, they began to weep. And this is where it says, where, this is where Nehemiah says, Go your way, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I'll tell you something, Nehemiah, his name means God comforts. And when you do God's will, you know God's comfort, no matter what you're going through. 
If you're in the center of the will of God and you've been opened up to him and you're following him, the Holy Spirit will be your comfort. And Nehemiah did, he was, he was so happy that the people were moved by the word of God, but he didn't want it to bring condemnation on them. The word of God is not to condemn you. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So condemnation does not come from God. But the word of God is meant to soften your heart. And these people were so soft, they began to weep. And Nehemiah says, don't be sorrowful. Don't let sorrow come in your heart because it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. And then, this is the bit I want to finish with. In the next few verses, it says, now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, month, which was the feast of tabernacles. Now, I want to explain something to you here, and I hope it comes across simply. But this is a great note for us to finish on. They desperately wanted to do what the word of God told them to do. And they discovered that for many, many years, in fact, I was reading it up, from the time of Joshua, they hadn't been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jewish religion was made up of seven feasts which were for God. They were, they're, they're wonderful to study. It's a, total, it's a whole total different study to do, the feasts from Passover, you know, there's Pentecost, all of the, we, we, we know these terms. Well, the very last one was the Feast of Tabernacles, which was where they made these booths out of certain types of trees, like little huts to live in. And they remembered the journey through the wilderness when, they, when God tabernacled with them in a tent and traveled with them on that journey. And every year they were supposed to keep that feast because that feast was important for them to remember their story, their history. But they hadn't been doing it for, from right from the time of Joshua. And when they realized that they had been disobeying God, their hearts were so soft that they said, we've got to start to do this. And so it says that they, they actually celebrated. They went out and they looked at all the instructions, the kind of trees they were meant to have, and they made these huts, these little booths, and they went out and they, they, they stayed on them. It says here that they, in verse uh, 15, uh, that they went out to the mountains and they brought these olive branches and all the trees. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths or huts uh, and made them on the roof of their houses or in the courtyards or in the court of the house of God and on the open square of the water gate. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and set under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so. And there was a very, listen to this, there was a very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed management. They were full of joy because they obeyed the word of God. The reason I'm telling you that is because they were doing something that was remembering how God had tabernacle to tabernacle means to dwell or to live in a tent god had tabernacled with them through the wilderness and they were remembering that and rejoicing and giving thanks to god but they had no idea that as they obeyed god they were actually doing something that was prophetic 
that the booze, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a prophetic act which pointed forward to Jesus coming to dwell or to tabernacle among us. John's Gospel, chapter 1, says he came and dwelt among us, or the proper word is he came and tabernacled among us. They did not understand that they were doing, they were starting up something again that God had commanded that was going to not only remember what God had done in the past, but going to point to what God was going to do in the future when Jesus would come in human flesh and dwell or tabernacle among them. And you know what? It even goes beyond that because not only did he come to tabernacle among them, but he came to live in us. And we are living and walking tabernacles who carry the presence of Christ. And not only that, but it points even beyond that. When Jesus comes back and sets up his earthly kingdom, he will set up this world will be his tabernacle and that feast will be fulfilled in completion. Isn't the word of God got so many strands and so many levels of truth, they had no idea. You see, God's plan has always been to live with us to dwell with us, to move with us, wherever we go that he goes. He wants to be with us. I don't understand why God wants to be with us, but he does. He wants to be with you every moment of the day. He loves you so much. He wants to dwell with you. He wants you to carry his presence. He wants you to know what it means to travel with him. And here's the thing. We don't just travel alone. We travel in community. We are all in one body. We are meant to live and move in community. Have we time for one quick story before I finish? Because I want just to share with you how God has worked in my life so that I could not only tabernacle with him, but that I would have others to tabernacle with. Because God is a God who puts the lonely in families. God is a God who brings us together, and he does it in the most unique and wonderful ways. And I just want to share with you before I leave this weekend, I want to share that this point in my life, whenever my separation was over, and around the mid-90s, where I was at my lowest point, I was living on my own with my son, William. He was around about eight years old. And his dad was living abroad, and I was on my own. And I was living in a fairly isolated part of Northern Ireland. I had really no friends around me, and I hadn't any church around me. And I'd started to work again, and I was working in a nearby town. And I, I, was, really, I was really going down, and I knew I was. And one, uh, one, uh, one uh, what do you call it? Do you call it Boxing Day? The second day of Christmas? Yeah. Is that Boxing Day here? Yeah. One Boxing Day... Do you know that term? Yeah. No? It's not, not Christmas Day, the day after Christmas Day. What do you call that? Boxing Day? The day after Christmas Day. I was up at my family, my, my parents' house, and I was sitting at the fire. Everyone else had gone to bed. And I was looking into the fire, and I had this thought, I felt the Lord said to me, if you don't get out of that house that you're in, you're going to go under. That was very clear in my spirit. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll put the house up for sale. So I put the house up for sale, and that was just after Christmas. And the house was sold a couple of times, and the sale fell through a couple of times. And eventually we got the house sold, and I was meant to move out in the month of June. And uh, I had already bought another house. But coming up to the time we'd agreed that I would get out, the house that I had bought 
Somehow or other, there was a problem with the land, a legal problem, and they told me I couldn't move into it. It wasn't, wasn't available. So I had nowhere to go. Now, I had a cousin, a second cousin. Some of you might know her, Judith. There's a couple, I know Anne knows Judith, and a few of you do. So Judith was, is much younger than I am, but she's a second cousin. And she came and she said, tell you what, don't worry. I'll sort you out. So you've, you've only got a few weeks between you leave your own house and you move to this next one. So Judith... I went to, uh, she, Judith had taken pity on me and brought me down to her church, which was a, a bit of a journey down to another town. And I started to go to her church. And Judith says, don't worry, there's a, a guy in our church and he's moving to Uganda. And he let you, you know, have his house for a couple of weeks. So that was fine. I didn't know, and neither did my cousin, that uh, this girl in our church called Jane, I'd only seen her a couple of times, I didn't know her. When I saw her, she had a long black coat down to the ground that she'd bought in a second-hand shop. And her hair was all shaped up the back and she had earrings all down here. I'm not saying that that's lovely, actually. I love that style. That's fine. But it wasn't. She didn't look like someone that, that we would really, you know, we didn't look like my best friend. But anyhow, I hadn't really spoken to her. I'd never spoken to the girl. So Judith goes up to her. and uh, So one day, Jane is walking up the town, meets this guy called Billy who owns the house. And says to Billy, I hear you're going to Uganda. Would you sell your house to me? So Billy says, okay. So they did a deal on the street. Nobody else involved, just the two of them. And the next thing I heard was, actually, uh, Jane now owns that house. My, my cousin says, don't worry about that. I'll go to Jane. I'll go and have a chat with Jane. So she goes to Jane and she says, Jane, would you mind if Maureen and William... William was eight years old at this stage. Would you mind if they stayed in your house for just maybe a week or ten days? Jane didn't like to say no. Jane says, okay, no problem. Jane's fairly easy going. Okay, no problem. So anyhow, we were introduced, and I didn't know, but Jane was actually kind of dreading us coming. <laughs> but I didn't know that. I thought everything was fine. So I arrived the day that I was moving out of my house. I have three brothers, and they all arrived down. They all live about 60 miles away, 70 miles away. And they all came down with this big trailer, and they jumped out of the trailer, and they started to empty everything out of my house. And then they packed the stuff into my car, and uh, I headed down with this car full of stuff down to Jane's house with William. Now, I've got to tell you that at that stage, William was eight years old, and he was wild. He was absolutely wild. If I went to visit someone, I literally have to hold him by the back of the neck because he would have just, he would have just slipped past the person at the, at the door and he would have gone through every room in the house and he had a real thing about getting into beds. <laughs> he would have got into every bed in the house. It was very, very embarrassing. So I'm trying to make a good impression on Jane because we're going to stay with her for at least maybe 10 days, maybe two weeks until I get my house. So I'm standing at the door and I've got a hold of William. My car is full of towels and bed linen and all kinds of stuff up to here. And we get in and uh, I'm thinking, okay, I have to let go of him eventually. So uh, eventually thought, I'll, I'll let go and I need to go out to the car. So I didn't know, but Jane had left a bath running for herself because she was going to a Christian camp that weekend and she had the bath running and I went out to bring in some stuff and when I came into the house, Jane came out the door to say that she had just gone up to have the bath only to see that William was already in the bath. <laughs> I was, as you can imagine, I was absolutely mortified. So I got him out of the bath, got him dried up and got him sorted. 
and um, I thought, okay, I have to bring the stuff in from the car, so I thought I can, I'll leave him for a moment or two. So I went out and got sorted, and as, as I come back in, Jane had had her bath, she's coming down the stairs, she walks into the kitchen to have a sandwich that she'd made for herself, uh, but to, to be able to eat something before she goes to camp, only to discover that William was sitting and munching on the sandwich. It was a total nightmare. As well as that, her boyfriend was standing up at the fire, and he was standing like this, and I think William went over and headbutted him as well. It was a total disaster. I didn't know, but afterwards, apparently, at that camp, she was telling everybody, I don't know how I'm going to go back to these two. What am I going to cope with this? Anyhow, she came back. And do you know, over the next week and ten days, we became great friends. I mean, we really connected. And do you know how long I ended up being in her house? Until the month of October. The, my house continued to be un, un, unavailable because of this legal thing that was wrong with me. It was something they had found that was not legal. Legal, Excuse me. I've got a dry throat and I'm quite emotional. And we were there for all those months. And during that time, William became part of Jane's life. And she learned everything about him and she learned his programme. And she, she, she spent money. She, worked, she was a factory girl. She worked in a factory sewing, stitching very hard work and she would spend her money on buying little outfits for him and when we left in the month of October we both stood and wept but God had brought and I have to tell you that she had so many problems growing up she'd been bullied she had so much stuff so much hurt in her life and God brought her into our family. And at the end of those months that I spent with her, she looked into my face and she said, I promise you that every Friday night when I finish my work, I'm coming up the road and I'm going to take William and I'm going to keep him for you overnight, every Friday night, to give you a free night. And she did that for years. And then I moved to another house and then she had to come and stay with me for a while and walk back and forwards. And eventually she had a car accident and she, she broke bones in her back and she couldn't go back to the work that she was doing and she ended up coming to live with us to convalesce. And I don't know how many years ago that was, but she's still living with us. And when William came out of school, when he finished his education, they offered me to, that he could go to a day centre or they could give me finances that I could pay someone to do a programme with William. And of course, there was the person. She couldn't go back to work. She had damaged her back. This was a perfect answer for her. Now listen, this girl has become like my daughter. I could not have a daughter who would, who would be better to me than this girl. She comes on holidays with us. She knows William. I could not be here tonight only she's got him and I know he's happy with her. And I want to say to you that God has brought us together to tabernacle together with God. We go to the same church. We love God. She loves God. And, we try. and I want to tell you, when you trust your heavenly father, he takes care of you. He puts the lonely in families. Jane is like my daughter. I am like her mother. And William is like her little brother. A big brother now. <laughs> And so I wanted to finish with that because I want to testify that God can be trusted. 
That even though sometimes it looks like things are hard or you're in a very hard place or how can this work out, I want to tell you that God can work things out in the most obscure way. No one would ever have dreamt that Jane and I would have ever become friends, let alone live together and, and done it with such joy. And our house is full of joy. I tell you, we have such laughter in our house because God is a God of joy. He's a God of laughter. He's a God who wants us to enjoy our lives. It's not about gritting our teeth and getting through. It's about trusting him and finding him to be true and putting everything into his hands and knowing that he can work out the very best plan for you. I love Hebrews 12 where it says that it's the sensible thing, it's the reasonable thing to do to present yourself a living sacrifice to this God because he will bring you into his good and perfect and acceptable will. It's good and it's perfect and it's acceptable to you. So I just wanted to leave you on that note that we have a God who wants us just to simply to trust him and obey. That's what these people did in the time of Nehemiah. Isn't it wonderful that across the world, every September, October, the Jews who still have not received their Messiah, most of them, isn't it amazing that they still keep the Feast of Tabernacles out in the booths, the little huts? Isn't it amazing that God knows what we're like? I think God knows how to appeal to the inner child in all of us. Who loved to make huts for the viewer child? We were always making huts. And I think he's a God who appeals to that child within us. And what a beautiful feast. And it's still being kept every, every year. The Jews are still having this feast where they live in huts and they remember that Jesus, that God travelled with them in a tent across the wilderness as he took them out of, out of the slavery of Egypt and they don't understand yet. We pray that the veil will be lifted off their eye, that they might begin to understand that that same God who travelled through the wilderness in a tent with them was the God who came in flesh, Jesus their Messiah. And that he's coming back again. And he's going to tabernacle. He's going to set up his tabernacle on this earth. And his kingdom is coming. Ladies, his kingdom is coming. And so as we look through all of these gates, I just want to finish just to say to you that God is faithful. That uh, as we go round these gates, we see that the sheep gate is our all knowledge. I just want to finish with this last verse and then we're going to, we're going to pray. Let me just read these verses to you. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who gave your only Son. We thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God. We thank you for what he has done for us on the cross. We thank you that he is not dead, that he's alive. We thank you, O God, that you're alive, that today you're with us in this place. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here to comfort us and to teach us and to minister to us and to help us. And Lord, just as we as we wait together in these closing moments of our weekend, Father, we want to thank you that you have been real, that you have come, you have met with us individually. And we just pray right now, Lord Jesus, that you would just by your spirit, would you prepare our hearts to receive the blessings that you want to pour out on this gathering. Thank you that you know every woman intimately, that you understand everything that's been going on in the life of every woman in this place. I just feel it would be good to take a moment and just let that drop into your spirit, that God knows everything about you. He knows your concerns. He knows the things that are going on in your life right now. He knows your past. He knows what he has for you up ahead. Holy Spirit, you are here with us tonight. And we ask you to move among us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who can minister deeply into our very souls, into our mind, into our emotions, into our spirit. God, we just want to thank you that you are here. And Lord, as we just wait in this time for you, we just want to thank you that this is an opportunity for every woman in this place to be ministered to. God wants to minister to you deeply and he wants to speak right into your spirit. Father, we just thank you that as we just allow the sound of the music of the heart just to gently move over us, that the ministry team are going to just go around and they're going to pray and minister to you if you don't want them to come just cross your arms across your chest if you don't want then they'll just be resting their hands and praying over you lord i just pray that you would minister deeply now for the glory of the lord jesus and for the blessing of your people